But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene de Mateo 5:38 al 48. Ustedes han oído que fue dicho ojo por ojo y diente por diente, pero yo les digo no resistan al que es malo, sino que cualquiera que te hiera en la mejilla derecha, preséntale también la otra. Y al que quiera provocarte a pleito para quitarte la túnica, déjale también la capa. Y a cualquiera que te obligue a llevar carga por una mía, ve con él dos. Al que te pida, dale. Y al que quiera tomar de ti prestado, no se lo rehúses. Ustedes han oído que fue dicho, amarás a tu prójimo y odiarás a tu enemigo. Pero yo les digo, amen a sus enemigos, bendigan a los que los maldicen, hagan bien a los que los odian y oren por quienes los persiguen, para que sean ustedes hijos de su Padre que está en los cielos, que hace salir el sol sobre malos y buenos y que hace llover sobre justos e injustos. Porque si ustedes aman solamente a quienes los aman, ¿qué recompensa tendrán? ¿Acaso no hacen lo mismo? los cobradores de impuestos, y si ustedes saludan solamente a sus hermanos, ¿qué hacen de más? ¿Acaso no hacen los, lo mismo los paganos? Por lo tanto, sean ustedes perfectos como su Padre, que está en los cielos, es perfecto. study of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, and let's pause and pray before we look at this passage. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. We don't take for granted that we can sit quietly and study, ponder your words with focus like this. And we pray that you would bless this time and make it remarkable in our lives. Receive our hearing of your word, and please bless my speaking and sharing about your word, my preaching. Uh, take the weakness of this, your servant, and make your grace sufficient for me, for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are good ideas there are great ideas, and then there are great idea, but you first ideas. Like this incredible glass house 
that I saw images of on the internet in this last week. Maybe you came across it as well. It has an incredible waterfront view of the Aegean Sea near the shores of Greece. It has an entire multi-storied glass wall facing the sea so that residents of the house or guests of the house can take in this breathtaking view of the sea at just about any point in the building. Oh, and did I mention to you that it's built on the side of a cliff overhanging the Aegean Sea hundreds of feet above the water, but it has a ro this rooftop swimming pool with a glass bottom that also then serves as a skylight for the top floor so you can feel like you're surrounded by water almost 360 degrees around you, which is this incredible idea and it's beautiful. But did I mention to you that it's dangling off a cliff and that at almost any moment you could come crashing down into the waves below? It's one of a kind. It might even be the final missing piece to my personal happiness, but no thank you. No thanks. Great idea, but go ahead. You, you go ahead first. Right? These are those ideas that are great in theory. Those ideas that you can sort of see the benefits of it. You might even appreciate it or the wisdom in it, but when it comes to actually doing it, when it comes to uh, pulling it off, not in theory, but in practice, well, you find yourself saying, that's not really realistic, or that doesn't seem safe, or that's not practical, that's not doable. Great idea, but uh, you first. This is how many of us feel about Jesus' teaching about loving our enemy. Who doesn't like the idea, the concept, the theory of being caring and generous with those who harm you, hurt you, even repeatedly? But nobody wants to do it. As John Stott, a commentator, put it, I think helpfully, nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling than what we find here in this passage and this grand command, love your enemies. What does that mean? How do we do it? We're going to look at this in two quick parts. First, resisting retaliation, and secondly, laboring to love. What does it mean to love your enemies? It means resisting retaliation, and secondly, laboring to love. Let's talk. In verse 38 to 39, we see this theme, even this command of Jesus, that we ought to resist retaliation even in the face of great harm. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What he's talking about here is the need to refrain from exacting personal revenge, of seeking 
personal retribution, vengeance against a person who has wronged you. He references in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He's referencing a principle that's found in the Old Testament in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19 that's often called the lex talionis. That's Latin for the law of proportional retribution. It was a way of sort of building in a system of justice in the laws and society of ancient Israel where people could actually demand proportional payment through the laws and court systems of Israel, proportional payment, but no more. It was also a way of making sure people didn't take the law and matters of crime into their own hands. Jesus is referencing the way in which people had started to use this as sort of a blanket permission slip to go ahead and knock your friend or enemy in the face or in the bank, once they've wronged you. And Jesus is very clear. He cites four different examples of being injured or insulted. You're slapped in the face, you're taken to court, you're forced into the service of another, you're asked for money. And again and again, he gives examples of shocking generosity. Turning the other cheek. Going the extra mile, he says, but whatever you do, do not demand revenge. It's important that we not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. First of all, Jesus is not dismissing evil. I mean, don't miss how he doesn't mince his words at all. He calls the wrongdoer in this passage an evil person in verse 39. His point is to forbid retribution, but it's not to encourage injustice or evil or to wink or shove it under the rug. In fact, he's taken the power of evil so seriously that he's pointing us to the only way in which evil can be overcome. And that is through love. You may know that in a sermon on the same passage, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said these insightful words, hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. In other words, our greatest instinct, which is to hit back or to seek vengeance, in fact, only makes the matter worse not only for the person in front of you, but for yourself in your own soul. As Dr. King has also said elsewhere, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And that's from this passage. Second, it's not wrong to long for justice. Jesus in saying that we should refrain from retribution is not saying that justice doesn't matter to God. He's not denying the principle of judgment. Remember earlier in the Beatitudes, earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus pronounced a blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's something to be longed for, to be sought after. 
But Jesus here is reminding us that just justice and retribution is the prerogative of the state and its criminal laws, and that ultimately is the prerogative of God in final judgment, not of the individual. That the individual must not take the law into her own hands. Rather, it is for us to seek or to desire mercy rather than personal revenge. Thirdly, however, Jesus isn't also prohibiting self-defense. There's a difference between neutralizing a threat and unleashing retribution on a person. Sometimes the difference isn't visible as much as it's a matter of the heart, which is always Jesus's first concern in the Sermon on the Mount. What are your goals and motives driving your actions? Jesus isn't prohibiting self-defense, but he is also saying that a life purely of self-defense will not do. If you take seriously what he's saying, he's saying that you cannot simply build around yourself a fortress of invincibility and say that you're living with the values of his kingdom. When you look at how he talks about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, without a doubt, he's talking about living with a certain form of vulnerability. To be a person in God's kingdom means, yes, exposing yourself to hurt and harm. Strange. It also means living according to the principle of generosity. Giving even when someone doesn't deserve what you're going to give them, namely love. Fourthly, though, Jesus isn't calling us, we have to know, calling us to be a pushover or a doormat. He's describing, as one commentator put it helpfully, not the weakling who offers no resistance, but a strong man or woman whose control of himself or herself and love for others are so powerful that he or she are able to reject absolutely every conceivable form of retaliation. This is a form of what Jesus called earlier in the Beatitudes, meekness. A strong form of humility, an inner discipline and self-control that allows you to subject yourself with vulnerability even to the harm of others. It requires preparedness of soul and self-control, which the Bible says is the fruit of the Spirit. It's divine. It must be God-given because that's how hard it is, you know, for people to rid themselves of their reactions of hate and their impulses of revenge. Of course, in pointing us in this direction, Jesus certainly is speaking about the dynamics of forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is refraining from retaliating and rather paying down the debt of someone else's wrong to you, paying it yourself. Again, Dr. King is helpful here when he says that forgiveness doesn't mean 
ignoring what has been done, no, or putting a false label on an evil act. That's not forgiveness. It means, rather, that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. He says, forgiveness is the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. Dear friends, what does this look like in your life today? Where are those places in your relationships, whether if they are completely broken or only partly broken? Whether if you identify the person as your mortal enemy or just a person in your life that has been irritating you greatly, whether in the home or in the neighborhood or in your workplace or some other corner of your life, who are you most tempted to retaliate against today? Jesus tells us that this can come in the form of our words, whether if it's lashing back or if it's the cold war of spreading rumors and gossip around a person, whether if it's retaliation through our actions, the things that we do or the fists that we throw, or retaliating even with our nonverbal communication, sort of ignoring a person, rolling your eyes, whatever it might be. What is it that you're most tempted to dive headfirst into or to dip your toe into today because of someone who's been harming you or someone who's opposed to you? It's so easy to dismiss Jesus' teaching as impractical or idealistic. And look, Jesus would be the first one to tell you that it's hard or even painful. I'm trying to live out these lessons myself. I feel like I'm learning them slowly, little by little, as I walk through life. Long ago, I had a conversation with someone who really just had a long list of what I think were unjust accusations against me. And they really felt the need to really systematically go down that list face to face with me. Now, without getting into all the details, Going into the conversation, I suspected that's what it might be like, and I knew that what I was going to have to do more than anything was refrain from retaliating verbally, setting them straight, but rather meekly listening and receiving. By God's grace, I kept to the game plan, but I tell you, when I came home, I was just a mess of tears. Because living like this and doing what Jesus asks us to do here is painful, it's hard, it's costly. Look at the nails in his hands. Look at his cross. We're not talking about someone who has no knowledge or integrity behind these words. Here is Jesus who confronted face to face his own enemies and opposers. Not only did they slap him on the cheek... They spat on him, blindfolded him, hit him, hurled insults at him, and mocked him, crowned him with thorns, and crucified him. And through it all, one commentator writes, Jesus, with the infinite dignity of self-control and love, held his peace. 
or to quote scripture, 1 Peter 2, the apostle writes this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. What does it look like for you to find the grace of self-control and non-retaliation this week? But Jesus calls us, you know, to more than non-retaliation, passive resistance. He calls us to an active love, an active love for those who harm us. He calls us to be ones who are laboring to love. Love your enemies, Jesus tells you, verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's important for us to hear this second half because, as St. Augustine said many centuries ago, many have learned to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. Because it's not just enough to walk away from the fight. Jesus says, love. For the good of your enemy, seek their highest good. Bless them. Serve them. Seek to return good for evil. Wow. Giving your face, your clothing, your service, your money, whatever love might require of you, for their benefit, not just sadistically, just to let it hurt, but as a service unto the person. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus calls us to love with our actions. As Luke 6 in the same passage talking about the same theme Luke has Jesus there saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He's talking about offering practical, humble, sacrificial service. I mean, have you ever done something so simple? It, it almost sounds uh, too ordinary to be uh, profound. Uh, have you ever smiled or baked cookies for someone that's insulted you? Have you ever gone out of your way to help someone in your workplace succeed knowing that they actually slightly sabotaged some of the work that you were doing? Have you ever done this? Because it's this that Jesus is calling us to do, to love with our actions, to love with our words, to love with our hearts. Because Jesus says, don't just serve, but pray. For those who persecute you. Prayer, which is sort of this combination of all three, bringing our hearts but also our actions, our commitment, our loves together before this person. It's why the early church father, John Chrysostom, from the fourth century called praying for those who harm you, he said, the, is the very highest summit of self-control. Who can do it? 
This is the pinnacle of Christian love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor and author who died for his faith under the Nazi regime, wrote this. This is the supreme command, to pray for those who persecute you. He said, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him with God. Have you prayed for someone who's hurt you lately? Because prayer has this mystical power of opening wide our heart for a person, increasing our love for them. It's impossible to pray for someone without growing in your love for them. And so sometimes even before the kindness of words or the kindness of deeds, sometimes you need to start loving your enemy by beginning with praying for them. You might start small, but to dare to do it. Which, after all, is precisely what Jesus did for you on the cross before his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you were to look in the Gospel of Luke at the language behind that very sentence there, you would see that the verb tense that the author uses is the form that indicates that Jesus probably was repeating that prayer again and again and again on the cross. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I think he meant it every time, but I think he needed those prayers too. That his heart would persevere in love for his enemy. All this, of course, is what the apostle says in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, because the whole goal of loving like this is transformation of yourself and of the other person and of the world around you. As Dr. King says in this sermon that he wrote and delivered on this very same passage, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. The hostility, the hatred, love transforms with redemptive power. And you say that just sounds unrealistic, Dr. King. It sounds like it just doesn't work. And he continues and fleshes it out. He says, here's a person who's a neighbor. And this person is doing something wrong to you and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them, which I thought was a wise insertion, by the way, because you might have opportunity to do that along the way. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long eventually. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. Do you believe in love's transforming power? 
Because you must if you're to love like this. You must believe in love's transforming power, you see, first and foremost for yourself. Because the only power that you have, dear friends, to love your enemies is to have experienced the power of a God who has loved you so. You and I, former enemies of God, who have been so generously and sacrificially loved by God in the first place. As Romans 5.10 tells us, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And someone says, well, how have I been an enemy of God? understand that the Bible's consistent witness is that we are, that I am a natural enemy of God, opposed to him. And you say, well, I don't even believe in God. How can you count me as an enemy of God? Well, you understand to ignore a person's existence or to live as if they're not even in your purview of life is an offense as well. We have, of course, the language in progressive thought, the erasure of peoples, which is an offense, which is even a form of oppression. We know the damage in which we afflict other people with by erasing them from existence, so to speak, how much more so with the God who made us, the God who blesses us, who gives us all good things. I am an enemy of God. You see, and if you live in a place that has laws of its own and you decide that you'll make laws of your own and abide by them, even if they contradict the laws of the land, what well, we typically call that treason or maybe mutiny. How much more so that if there's a God who lives having constructed the moral laws of this universe and whether or not you believe in him or abide by his laws, you've decided to construct your own and redefine, yes, even the law of love. Yes, even the law of justice itself. Do you see how you may have committed treason against the God, the moral lawgiver himself? You've declared war against this God. And if we live in a land or in relationships where we give our allegiance to someone else or something else, we either call them a traitor or an adulterer. That's the nature of that betrayal. How much more so to be in a relationship with a God who made you, and yet, though he deserves your every affection and allegiance, though he deserves your life and your service, though he deserves your highest joy, for you to take all those things and plant them into the lives of other people and things, whether if it's your career or if it's your child or if, you're, if it's your buddies on the block, and you turn to them and you say, give me ultimate joy. Give me satisfaction. Make me meaningful. Make me significant. In other words, you ask from them everything that God promises to you and that God alone can actually give you. Have you not also then committed treason against this God? Living as an enemy of God and his will. This is the natural state of all of us, says the Bible. 
And yet God is so zealous in his love for those whom he's made, passionate in his commitment to redeem and restore, that he saw fit to give up his own son and treat his beloved like an enemy on the cross. Because Jesus deserved infinite eternal affection and loyalty from the Father. And yet God poured out his wrath upon his son. Wrath that we deserved. Warfare that we had earned. That he took on the cross in our place. So that we might become the friends of God. That we might be reconciled to him that we even more might be brought into the family of God so that those who are former enemies might stand up with confidence in your heart and yet also with humility and declare, I am a child of God. I once was an enemy, but now he calls me not just a friend, he calls me son. He calls me daughter. He calls You, child, this is the gospel, the good news. This is the story that you have embraced if you are a follower of Christ or can embrace if you would like to become a follower of Christ. This is your experience of transformative love, the story and experience of a God who loved his enemies. If that is you, how can you not be changed by him? beginning by the power of his spirit, by the grace of God, to take baby steps to love like him, as this passage says, to be a child like his or her heavenly father, who sends even rain, which we've been getting too much of this month, so the analogy almost doesn't work, but rain's a good thing. That somehow he's not selective in who gets to get the rain and the sunshine. That every person, whether friend or foe, follower or enemy, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who are even evil, he gives these blessings and pours himself out generously to all. Here Jesus says, be like your daddy. Don't you know he has loved You so. While we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not resist an evil person. Rather, love your enemies, I tell you, and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus tells us, look, to do otherwise is no big deal. Who doesn't love his friends? Who doesn't love those who already love you? Who doesn't love those who are already like you? Even pagans do that, he says. You don't need the help of God to do that. Even tax collectors do that. In that day, the lowest of the low in society. What are you doing more than others? Here it is. 
Love that requires supernatural grace. Love that you cannot do on your own. Love where you will need God's help and power to accomplish or you will run out of gas or never even start in the first place. Love that's love for your enemies. This week, will you dare to love like that? Let's pray. So Jesus, we're desperate for you. We need your help. We're we're, we're not even sure exactly how to do this. Give us grace to figure this out. But give us hope. Give us joy. And most of all, give us the love of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Hallelujah. 